Accessing library computer data. Level 9 authorization required. Command codes verified. Welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Moms Going Boldly is two moms who love Star Trek and who also happen to have children on the autism spectrum. We talk about the new Star Trek Discovery TV series, as well as any autism issues we see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth, and with me is my co-host, Vicki. Hi, I'm Vicki. We are Moms Going Boldly. And welcome back to Moms Going Boldly, and today we're discussing Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 2, Anomaly. What did you think of this episode, Vicki? I liked this episode. Some of it was predictable. Like you saw that coming, but I liked it. I liked it too, though. I actually found it difficult to watch. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, this whole episode was about grief and it wasn't just about books, grief at the destruction of Quijon. It was about everyone's grief. Almost every character we saw was expressing some kind of grief. So when I watched this, not on purpose, just sort of happened to correspond to that day it was actually the anniversary of my father's death so i was feeling my own grief i guess in a way i was very open to the grief that i was observing and so very much cluing in on tilly's grief and saru's grief and even adira's grief okay it was interesting to me that and, and i actually appreciated that they were looking at grief from all these different perspectives that makes any sense it does this episode starts with Book experiencing his grief. And he's in his ship. And it appears that he is essentially having his ship's visual recording device replay the last moments of Quijon. And he is trying to figure out what he could have done differently, understand what happened, sort through his feelings, I guess. Michael is there, and she's trying to help him. And it's unbelievably awkward. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't want to help at this point. He doesn't even know what he would need. He wouldn't even know how to ask for help at this point. Right. While I love this episode for its examining grief, it also doesn't really do much in terms of tell us the audience how maybe maybe it did. Maybe it was, you know, grief is grief is what Dr. Colbert said at one point. And everybody experiences it differently, which is very true. I don't know. Michael and Book, that scene is so awkward because she's like, how do I help you? And he has no clue. Right. He doesn't know how to help himself because they were only like, what, 48 hours out from this incredibly traumatic experience? Right. Yeah. Because she said he was in a ship for two days. Yeah. So where's Dr. Colbert saying, listen, you're going to have to just take this one step at a time, which he did do with Stamets. Yes. So we, we have book there. It's painful. It's horrible to see his, his grief and to see him not knowing what he needs and, and, and her not knowing how to help him. And then she's called to her ready room to uh, uh, greet a guest. And he says, you can help me by leaving. And so she does. And the guest is Saru, who's back in his Starfleet uniform, and he was offered command of a ship, but he says he doesn't want that, and he would prefer to be her first officer if she's cool with that, and she's very cool with that. So that is kind of nice. And he has a pin on his shoulder that reflects his status as an elder of on his village council. Mm-hmm. And so he's got that to show that he is still connected with his world in this 
role, but he was on the council in, in absentia, he says. Right. So we know that there's going to be something that comes down the pike that's going to be this connectedness that he still has with Kaminar, which I'm kind of glad about. So then we go to a Federation headquarters for a briefing, and we've got all these Starship captains, and we've got Admiral Vance, and we've got President Rillick, and the Discovery crew is trying to explain what it is that they saw, but they don't know. They just don't know. It doesn't make sense. And they think maybe it's two black holes that are merging and roving through space that's causing this, but they won't know anything until they go gather data. And President Tarina of Navarre, which is the planet formerly known as Vulcan, has volunteered the Navarre Science Institute for helping with data analysis, even though they're not a Federation planet. So that was kind of cool because we kind of see that they're coming together to try to help each other. So they send the discovery out to the anomaly to gather data after this briefing. Mm -hmm. So they do an analysis about what safe distance is. They get there, they're hanging out in front of the anomaly, but they can't get close enough to gather data. So there's only one thing to do. Now, why didn't they send in the shuttlecraft? I don't know. But Book says he'll go in, his ship can handle it, he can do it. And Michael is just like, oh, no way. You're all like compromised emotionally, so you can't go. I was frustrated with that. How did you feel about that? Well, she was right. She was absolutely right. Absolutely. She was. That was my we saw that coming moment. And we did. Although he's not Starfleet, as he pointed out. Yeah. And she probably couldn't have stopped him. I guess for me, she spent too much time angsting about this. I think that was really what bothered me. And it, you know, it kind of goes back to some of what we've talked about before. You know, there's a certain speed in decision making that a leader has to make. Yes. And she doesn't. But she spends a lot of time not doing it. Right. Sometimes. And then other times she's like, we're going to do this. Boom. Right. And we see that later when Saru has to finally step in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and that's where it was obvious that it was the right choice to send Book in, despite the fact that, that we knew that he ha- he was compromised and it could be a problem. Right. And I would have liked to have seen that series of events happen a lot faster, I guess. I don't know. Am I being too, pr- too no. picky about this? No, no, <laughs> no. I see what you're saying. Because as soon as Saru sat down and said, I have some suggestions, they were obvious. So, and it was like, you know, where was this before? And is it because that she is too emotionally impacted by what happened to Quijon? In which case, maybe she should be recusing herself. True. I don't know. Yeah. I think, yeah, what happened to Quijon and the way it's affecting Book, which is personal to her. Yes. But they, ha- they come up with a really great solution. So we'll talk about that in a minute. So then we have another scene where we have Dr. Culber and we have Adira and Gray, and they're examining a holographic body that they're going to transfer Gray's consciousness into. And it's going to be an android based on Data's design. And apparently it was a synthetic body that had been created for Admiral Jean-Luc Picard. Did we know about this? Yes, at the end of Picard. You didn't watch till the end. No, I didn't. Yeah. I thought it was just an android body. I didn't realize it was a hologram. Oh, okay. So you mean in with that, that Dr. Culber showing them? Okay. So I thought it was a hologram because when Gray asked for the removal of the mole, he did it. Okay, like, but the hologram is just to show them the android body, correct? I guess, Okay. Yes. Because I was a little upset about this because, as I said, I thought they were going to use the holograph yeah. to give Gray a body. Although, yeah. it was very odd that they decided to give Gray a android body in the same episode where Burnham installs a hollow suite and yeah. Stamets goes on the ship with Book as a hologram, as a hologram. who could yeah. feel everything that's going on. 
When you said it was a holographic body, I was like, wait, I watched this twice. I missed it. No, it was a holographic representation of the the android body that they were going to make. Okay. That's what I got. That's the impression I got. No. Okay. That makes sense. So they wanted to like make sure Gray approved of it before they actually built it. I'm guessing. So I haven't given up on my holographic body. Okay. (laughs) You hang on to that. I will. It's a good idea. As we saw with the doctor, the holographic doctor in Voyager, there's a lot of advantages to the holographic body that you don't always have with a material body. Right. And there you see actually that one of the elements of grief that I was talking about, because Adira experiences some grief. They're clearly ambivalent about Gray's new body, excited to have Gray become corporeal. Mm -hmm. But there's also an undertone of sadness in them, I think. And we find out later that they were thinking about when Gray actually died. Right. And then Gray feels sadness because he's happy about getting a corporeal body, but it's in the wake of this terrible disaster on Quijon. So we see even Gray is having grief for this event that's so overwhelming. So let's talk about that holographic recreation on a Vulcan that Burnham has in her ready room. My my son said, how does she not walk into furniture? (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was a really good question. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I can think of is sort of like the way the holodeck was discussed and described in The Next Generation was that it was some kind of almost like a treadmill effect on the floor. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I figured was going on with the holographic image in the ready room is that there's a treadmill effect that's created. Anyway, and then she um, has Zora deactivate the hologram and Zora is the name of the computer. Mm -hmm. Now, is that the sphere data? Yes. The sphere data has named itself Zora. Which is the name of the voice in that short trek. Ah, yes, that's right. So do you think by now they've actually duplicated the sphere data so that Discovery isn't the only one carrying it around? Oh, I don't know. That never occurred to me. That probably would be a good idea. I don't know. It just seems like it would be, yeah, just to have a backup someplace yeah. in case. Because when you have a, you know, a moving computer like a ship, things can happen. Yeah. So after Saru suggests the safety measures, some really clever safety measures to protect Book, when he goes to gather the data, we have a scene where Burnham is talking to Stamets in engineering, and Stamets makes a joke about <laughs> being sent off in a an escape pod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of that? Well, I guess that was definitely showing us that their problem was over. Or mostly over? Yeah. Well, he could be a little, you know sarcastic yeah Yeah. i was kind of but i'm glad i'm really glad because i i actually was not looking forward to that whole resolve that tension thing yeah so i'm glad that we don't have to see it that makes me happy anyway but the great idea that saru had is that stamets is objecting to going going out on the ship with book because he's he and book are the ones who can run a spore drive and if they're both on the ship you know then there's no one available to run the spore drive especially if they're both killed so she's like, accept that. We're going to send you as a hologram. And we're going to have a tether on Book's ship. And so then it's like, oh, okay, this makes sense. After she leaves, Stamets confesses to Colbert that he has no idea how to deal with this. You know, Book has, had, has suffered such a huge loss. He's clearly traumatized, and he's clueless as to how to help him. So then we get, we see Colbert, do, I think, doing a good job of saying, just let him take the lead. 
Yeah. And you'll know what to do, which seems a little light because most people, when they're faced with people who are experiencing grief, they're mostly afraid. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Sure. They're afraid of doing the wrong thing. And they're afraid of feeling the wrong thing. Because sometimes when you're faced with somebody else's grief, you feel the grief too. And a lot of people, it's unpleasant. Nobody wants to feel it. So they're afraid to go near the grieving person because they don't want to feel the grief too. And it takes a lot of courage to step in and say, okay, I'm going to be comfortable or okay with whatever feelings come out of this. I don't know. Would you consider Stamets to be a courageous person? Not to say that he's a coward or anything. He's definitely not the character that leaps into the middle of the fight. Right. I haven't seen him step yeah. up like that at so all. So I'm going to go ahead and give him some credit for jumping into this, knowing that it might be really uncomfortable for him. Well, it's uncomfortable for him because of the tragedy, but he also said it's uncomfortable for him because he doesn't deal with Book at all. Even under normal circumstances, they don't have very much interaction. And there's a discomfort between them now because Stamets has lost his position of power, in a way, of being the only one who can run the spore drive. Right. I know that's what we said a couple weeks ago when we found out that book could run the spore drive. But as it turns out, it doesn't seem to be a problem for Stamets like we thought it would be. We do get to see some really good interaction with Book and Stamets towards the end of the episode, right. and where Stamets kind of talks about how Book saved his family. Right. And Stamets actually discusses very briefly, correct me if I'm wrong, but I could have sworn I saw this, his own grief about not being the one who rescued his family. Yes, he was the one who was helpless. And he was grieving that. That was more his discomfort with Book than anything yes. having to do with the spore drive. Yes. Yeah. Because while he may not be heroic, he wanted to be his family's hero. Right. So I loved that because that's very subtle. You know, we have some very subtle griefs that we're looking at, you know, and I appreciated the writers examining how, yes, trauma and death are understandable griefs, but there are other griefs that are more complicated, more nuanced, that still impact people. We're going to pause right here for a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Doug Gramley here from Yeah, That Can't Be Good. Doug here from the 13th Warehouse. If you are a fan of Eureka, please join Kim, Vicky, Skip, and myself over at Yeah, That Can't Be Good for an episode-by-episode podcast of all things Eureka at EurekaRewatch.com. If you're a fan of Warehouse 13, please join Kim and Vicky over at the 13th Warehouse at the13thwarehouse.com. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on Twitter at Eureka Warehouse. And we're back. We have kind of some fun action scenes that take place in this story. As Book goes into the anomaly, there's a lot of debris. Presumably it's Quijon. But Discovery is also experiencing some bizarre effects as the anomaly is sending out these gravitational waves without warning and not being able to be predicted, which is actually causing everyone to float and then fall hard. Poor Owo. Did you see all the blood in her mouth? Because she hit her mouth when she fall, which I thought was very realistic. Because, yeah, that's going to happen. You're going to accidentally bite your tongue or bite your lip as you fall unexpectedly. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out why. And there's a scene with Tilly and Adira where Tilly is kind of short with Adira about trying to gather all the data. And Adira's like, of course I've got all this data. And Tilly's like, we always double check no matter who we are. 
Yeah. Which I thought was a really good point to make. Yeah, she could have made it a little softer, I guess. Yes, it was yeah. very brusque for Tilly. Yeah. And so that was a surprise. And then Culber says to Tilly, you know, they actually look up to you and they really want your respect, which I thought was a really good thing to explain to Tilly because Tilly knows exactly how that feels. I mean, that was Tilly a mm-hmm. year ago. Yes, there's a lot of resemblance between yeah. the two. Tilly and Adira figure out that there is some kind of pattern to it and they can predict when it's going to happen, but not why it's happening. Meanwhile, there's so much data to be gathered. And I guess there's, I don't know, was there, it was unclear to me is why it was so hard to get all the data. Was it because of interference? I have to imagine. I'm not exactly sure if they said, but I have to imagine because of all the debris and the interference and whatever yeah. was keeping them from the data in the first place, the cloud. The accretion cloud. Yeah. Which essentially is just a nice way of saying the garbage this thing is is vacuuming up after destroying planets. Yeah. So they realize that they're going to have to move away. Um, the Discovery is going to have to move away from this thing because it's just going to keep getting pounded by these gravitational waves. And eventually the artificial gravity generators are not going to function. Mm-hmm. And so they let the tether go on Book's ship so that Book and Stamets can still gather the data, but then they can't get out. They don't have enough engine power or to fight the gravitational waves or something and Tilly and Adira discover that the waves are predictable and they can be ridden out of the anomaly. Do you remember when we've had a starship ride waves out before? Not off the top of my head. There's a next generation episode where pretty sure this is the episode it's in like the sixth or seventh season where they discover that warp drive is damaging a part of space. Okay, I remember the episode, yeah. And I believe in that episode, there are these gravitational waves from the damaged space that they have to ride out. Remember that one? I do remember the episode. I absolutely remember And then there the was another episode where right after Alexander joins Worf on the Enterprise, and he's ha- really struggling and having problems. Mm-hmm. And they're doing these experiments with soliton waves and riding the soliton wave instead of warp. Okay. And then Alexander gets trapped in the lab. Yeah, I remember the Alexander part of it. I don't really remember the waves. Those are the two times that I can remember a ship riding a wave on Star Trek. Maybe there's others, but that's what I remember. Anyway, so here we are. We're going to have Book ride the wave out again. And somehow Burnham is going to sense the wave and then communicate to Book when he can go. I guess she's using that programmable matter to mimic the wave's ebbs and flows. Yes. And the first try doesn't work. And then after that, Book kind of gets lost he is so lost in his grief and he's seeing his nephew leto in his ship and he's seeing visions of his brother and koizhan before it was destroyed and he is really lost and so michael gets some kind of privacy cone of silence <laughs> do you ever see get smart when you were a kid <laughs> yes as soon as you said yeah. cone of silence. <laughs> <laughs> anyway she gets a cone of silence and she has a really nice talk i like that scene i mean it was a little hokey with the cone of silence yeah. but you know her trying to bring him back and remind him he's not alone and that there are people who care about him and who's who are with him and that will help him i, I thought that was really nice yeah and so she talks him back into cluing back in she tells him when to hit the gas to catch the wave they catch the wave and he rides it out and then they come back and they've got a lot of data that they're going to need to go through so while they were trying to ride the wave book tried to send stamets away and stamets tells him that the data is not transmitting to the ship yes and i almost thought and i'm still not clear he just said that so he could stay with book you know that 
is an excellent idea. I did not pick up on that, but I love it as an idea. And I hope you're right. That's what it felt like to me because Book just wanted him to leave. And I thought that was his way of staying with him. Yeah, I agree. I like that. I like that idea a lot. And that would add a nice layer to Stamets. Yeah, definitely. And then I like Saru's line to, I think it was Reese or Bryce. I can never remember which one's which. May we all cultivate such life-saving hobbies. I think it was Bryce. Yeah. Because it was Bryce's idea to ride the wave out like kite surfing. Right. Yeah. That was a good line. I agree. So we get booked back and they're downloading all the data and everybody's kind of pulling together afterwards. And we see Stamets thanking Book for saving his family. Mm -hmm. And we see Tilly thanking Culber for his advice regarding Adira. And then she says she's been feeling off and she says she wants his professional help. So we're now really cementing Culber as the ship's counselor here. Yes. What do you suppose Tilly is grieving? It's kind of clear that she's been feeling off since last season, since they arrived there. Yeah. And I think it's just something as simple as, it's one thing to say, yeah, we're going to go 930 years into the future. It's another thing to actually do it and realize that everyone you know is gone. Yes. And it seems to me that she's been off since the beginning of the third season, when they first arrived. That's my thoughts. Actually, that was my first thought as well. But I'm kind of also wondering if maybe there isn't a little bit of, I don't know how to explain it, but she's wanted so long to become an officer. That was her big thing when we first meet her in the first season is that she's going to be an officer and she's working her tail off to become an officer. Now she's an officer. And maybe it's not that important to her anymore. Or maybe it isn't what she expected there's a lot more responsibility and a lot more life and death decisions, which she had to, you know, make when she mm-hmm. was on the space station with Nallis and his overreaction. Right. And maybe there's some grieving that she's lost some of her naivete. She's lost some of her innocence and she may be grieving that. That could be. What you surmised about dealing with the loss of everything 900 years in the past, that was the first thing I thought. And then we also have a scene with Adira and Gray and Adira you know, talks to Gray about how Nalus's death made them think of Gray dying in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. But if Gray has got a new android body, it's going to be, in a lot of ways, superior to a human body, much more durable. Yes. And I kind of wonder if maybe Azira isn't thinking about their own death and Gray being left alone. So just yeah. kind of something that I hadn't thought mind. of that. And then we do see Book finally kind of um, having some catharsis and crying with Michael, which is good to try to help him be on that road to healing. And then the final scene, which I thought was really interesting, if a little heavy handed, (laughs) the anomaly is completely a mystery to discovery. And they came there to be able to predict where it was going to go so they could then, you know, evacuate people and, you know, save people and not have the same kind of terrible tragedy and disaster that Kuijan experienced. And they realize they can't. The anomaly is not moving the way it should. It's not behaving in predictable ways based on physics. Right. So do you think going there is what made the anomaly change course? That's what I thought they were going to say at first. Our presence did this. Yeah. But that would then make it predictable. Right, but they don't seem to know that their presence... Well, they didn't say their presence did this. Right. But it was That's just... That's where I thought they were going at first. Yeah, so maybe they don't know that. I don't know. That's where I thought they were going with it. I, so I thought too. 
And then the other thing was at the at the very last scene, we pull away from the anomaly, mm-hmm. which looks like a black hole. I mean, it does look like a black hole. And they said it was made of dark matter. Right. I do remember them saying that. We pull away from it and we were pulling back very quickly and we're seeing all kinds of astronomical phenomena. We're seeing, you know, galaxies and planets and suns, etc., in a way that looks like they're being drawn towards the anomaly. Right. And that was the impression you got as well? It was. It looked like they were going right into it without even knowing it. That part of it, I don't know. You know, the ship was able to sit in a green zone and not be impacted by the anomaly's gravitational pull. But planets and suns from far, far away are? Right. It doesn't make any sense. But it did look like the ship, unless they were showing us some other ship, but it did look like the ship was going right into it. You mean the Discovery? Yeah. Or some... Interesting. See, I didn't see that, but maybe I'll go back and look well, at it. Well, when you yeah. look at the ship before it pans out, it looks like the ship's heading right into it. Now, it could be another ship that we're looking at. Maybe it's not Discovery, but it does look like there was a ship going into it, and then when they pull out farther, it looks like an eye. Yeah, it did look like an eye. Yeah. I don't know. Just watch that last. I'll rewatch that and see if it looks like the ship is going into it. Because if that's the case, you know, maybe they can't tell that they're being drawn in. Right. Which reminds me of another episode, but I can't think of it. Original series? Oh, no. So I'm... there's the original series episode with the weird paramecium. But then there's the the, the Next Generation series with uh, Nagilum, the black thing in space that sort of ate them. Yeah, that might be the one. And then, like, wanted to kill a, a half of the crew to... Uh, observe death i can't remember but that sounds familiar i don't know what they're trying to show us here i don't know if the ship i saw was actually discovery because i saw it too quickly and i really didn't go back and look again maybe they were just showing us some random ship in some part of space that was taking everything in i don't know i'll go back and take a look and see but that's the end of this episode so we have this you know dun 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 moment about we can't predict where it's going. And then that's pretty much the end of it. Oh, one other thing that I thought was really interesting is just before Tilly comes to Saru to give him the dun-dun-dun moment, he's actually caressing his medal. Yeah. Suggesting that he's missing Kaminar and missing being with his fellow Kelpians, which is another sort of sign of this kind of grief. Right. We have another little examination of grief there, his missing, you know, being at home. Right. But it was very subtle. Yeah. And soon overridden by the dun I'm liking that, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of the episode. Is there anything I missed or anything that you wanted to talk about? No, I don't think so. I think we got everything. Okay, good. So the next episode is called Choose to Live. What do you suppose that's about? It's got to be about book. Yeah, I think you're right. But it also could be about Gray. Yeah, true. Um, I'm just thinking of book and his depression and his grief. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an obvious... Might be too obvious, yeah. Yeah. Unless there's anything else, we should uh, invite our listeners to join us next time. Okay, next time, please join us for Moms Going Boldly, where we talk about Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 3, Choose to Live. We'll see you then. We'll see you next week. You can continue exploring the universe with Moms Going Boldly by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash momsgoingboldly and on Twitter at momsgoingboldly. The music used on Moms Going Boldly is Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. On Twitter, at Ross Bugden. Licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license, creativecommons.org. You can listen to Moms Going Boldly on Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Player FM.
and we're now also available on Apple Podcasts. Transfer complete.